So we're getting more used to it. Week two here in the building where the church meets. Uh, how'd it feel tonight? A little bit, little bit more comfortable, a little bit more like home a little bit? Yeah. It'll kind of be a journey for us, I know. So it's, uh, we added some cool, you know, globe type things. At first glance, it's like the planetary system, but uh, second glance, it's a piece of art, you know, which is, it's funny how often those two things coincide. Uh, can I tell you guys something that's hilarious? Um, parents, you'll probably appreciate this a little bit more, but it's funny to watch adults play kids' games with kids. You know what I'm saying? My, uh, my little girl, Avery, is two and a half, and for Christmas she got this, uh, this toy. That, basically, it's like this little elephant thing, and inside is this fan, right? It's pretty dangerous, actually. And, and this thing, like, there's this plastic thing that goes up that, like, fills when the air, when the fan turns on, and you put these little butterflies in there, and, and then everyone gets a net, right? And, and then these butterflies just, like, blow everywhere, and you're trying to catch them, right? Well... If there was a bunch of adults playing this game, it would, you know, it'd be like, great, like, I got three butterflies, you know what I mean? But when you're an adult and you're playing with, when you're playing with a kid, I mean, you're like, this is awesome, you know, and, and my arms are flailing around and I'm trying to block Avery, I mean, it, it, you just go crazy, you know what I mean? You, you're, you know, and, and at the end, I'm like, Avery, how many did you get? Oh, zero, daddy got five, what's up now, you know what I mean? But, but then, like, sometimes, sometimes you need to be creative, because... Kids are easily, I mean, they just, you know, they, they just move quickly. And so a couple, a couple nights ago, we were playing together, and uh, we were starting to get bored. And I was like, hey, uh, Avery, let's go upstairs. And I had no idea what we were going to do, but I was like, there's an awesome game upstairs. So my plan was by the time we got up there, I would think, just think of something, you know what I mean? So, so we get upstairs, and I, like in my living room upstairs, there's this table with uh, four ottomans underneath. So I'm like, what are we going to, you know? So I pull out two of the ottomans. And I'm like, Avery, all right, you need to sit in, sit in the other ottoman, okay? And I'm just making it up as we go. And I'm like, all right, Avery, here's the coolest game ever. We count to three, and then we just get up and just chase each other until someone says, sit on the chair, you know? Like, all, like this game, just, so it's basically musical chairs without the music and the same number of chairs as people, you know? So pretty much not musical chairs, but that's what I called it. So anyway, so, so we're sitting down, and I'm like, one two, and I mean for 15 minutes straight, we play this game with absolutely no point, but she just so, she wakes up the next morning, she's like, mommy, can we play musical chairs, you know, and she's like taking her up and showing her how to play it, the next time I'm with her, can we play this stupid game, I mean it's, it's unbelievable how much kids are just, are drawn to the craziest things, uh, what I was thinking about after I walked away from that, is like for Avery, whenever she tastes Something that she likes, um, hot dogs, pizza, now she's a lot like her daddy. Um, whenever she plays a game that she loves, like musical, not really chairs, you know? Whenever she hangs out with a group of friends, like right now in our lot family, Abby and Anna and her are just, you know, three little, the rat pack. She is just, she just craves it. Like her desire for those things She's always innocently talks about it. Daddy, can we play that again? Can we play that again? She never gets tired of it. We have a lot to learn from kids, huh? And, and I was thinking about tonight as we begin a new journey through a first John. Just asking God to give us the heart of an innocent child that would at the opening of the word just crave more of it. That like once we taste it, 
we can't get enough. In fact, it's the thing that we're always talking about. That once we hear it, it's the thing that we're drawn to. That once we start talking, like we're, there's such a joy and an innocent childlike passion that's attributed to the Word of God that just calls us back here week in, week out, just to grow and learn together. I would be like my little girl in so many ways. And so here's what I want to do. I want to pray for that right now before, uh, I just want to pray over our journey through 1 John. We're beginning our third book here. Exciting. We're ready to roll. Let's pray over that and that God would just give us a heart just to desire it and crave it and yearn for it. Are you with me? Let's pray together. God, we need you right now to come and infiltrate our hearts with the gospel. I thank you in your word. You tell us that unless we become like little children, that we have no part of you. And so God, give us that innocent faith, that yearning desire just for more of the things that we love. And God, will you you make yourself the object of our affection? Will you create in our hearts a desire that just yearns and craves for more of you, Father? We love you and we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to gather in your holy name and your awesome name. And all of God's people said, open your Bibles to you first. John with me. Are you guys excited about this? First John, you ready to roll? So we journeyed for 18 months through the 50 chapter book of Genesis. Our next move was through the Gospel of Luke. And tonight we uh, we begin First John. Now, anytime that you begin a book in your personal study, there are three questions that you always need to ask. The unfortunate thing is, is that for our lazy selves, we rarely ask these questions and just plow right through. But doing so, we miss the context and the point and the beauty of the letter, gospel, epistle, whatever it may be. Those three questions are, who wrote it? To whom did they write it to? And for what purpose did they write it? Now, first of all, the first question, who wrote it? Well, if you're a Captain Obvious, you like look down in your Bible. John, you know, like like the heading, right? The problem with that theory across the board is, is that once, like, once in a while you get to books like Leviticus, right? And so if your plan is just to always look at the heading, you're going to, like, who wrote Leviticus? Uh, Mr. Leviticus? I don't, you know what I mean? Like, no. So it doesn't always work that way. Now, a lot of times in Scripture, the title is the author, but a lot of times it's not, okay? So why did or who did write this epistle? Well, it is John, I believe, and here's why. First of all, he writes a gospel, like many of you may know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The first three gospels are called the synoptic gospels because they have a lot of similarities. The gospel of John has its like own flavor and flair, and so it's completely separated from the synoptic gospels. Now listen to this. There are 51 parallels in theology, vocabulary, and syntax between the Gospel of John and the Epistle of 1 John. Interesting. There are four, if not five, Greek words that we only see in the Gospel of John and the Epistle of 1 John. So for those reasons and a few others, including the fact that early Christian historians and writers attributed the authorship to John, we believe that John wrote it. Now, many people would argue that 2nd and 3rd John may possibly be a different author. We're not here to argue that tonight, but we're here to say that John wrote this. And who's John, by the way? Well, many of you would say he's a, he's a disciple, which he is. But Luke chapter 5, verse 10 says that his dad's Zebedee, which says a whole lot for all of us, right? We're like, oh yeah, Zebedee, yeah. Like, who is that guy, you know? 
He's the, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, and not just the brother of James, but Scripture says in Luke 5.10 that he's the companion of Simon Peter in trade, which makes him what? Uh, a fisherman. A fisherman. Now, quick math here. If John is a disciple, and he's a fisherman, a simpleton, if you will, not calling those of you who are fishermen here simpletons, and not even simpletons being a bad thing, uh, if he is a disciple, then the next question is, like, like what... At what point did John write this? Because if he was a disciple around in the time of Jesus, then that would have been a long time ago probably, right? Now, a lot of people, when you ask, like, so when did people read each of the books of the Bible? You just, like, look at Genesis and think that it goes Genesis to Revelation. Bam, 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 bam. Well, sometimes that's true chronologically. Other times it's not. Most scholars would agree that 1 John and the Gospel of John were written somewhere in between the mid-80s A.D. and the early 100s A.D. Quick math, if uh, Jesus and his ministry were somewhere around the 30s A.D. and he wrote this in between the mid-80s to mid-early uh, 100s A.D., John's an old dude, right? You know what I'm saying? Like this is, this is a grandpa sitting down to write a, an epistle, an, an encouragement this is an old guy. Now, I, um, our good friend Jason O'Dell, many of you guys know Jason. He, uh, he coined this phrase that I think would best attribute to, uh, to John. He, uh, have any of you guys ever heard of old man power? Have you guys heard this phrase? Well, he, he, he just really burdened on his heart to, to put a phrase to the, you know, to the yearning to have this wisdom and power of an old man. So he calls it old man power. I simplified it into OMP, okay? So if you're ever around, you know, an individual and you're just like, that guy or woman, whatever, has a lot of, you say OMP, right? And it creates an interesting conversation. John has an incredible amount of old man power. Now, I, I texted Jason today and just said, dude, can you define old man power for me? And so he texted back and here's what he said. I mean, if he created it, we better go with his definition, correct? He says this, the strength that comes with time and experience by being wounded and healed. The maturing made possible by encounters with love that culminates in genuine humility. Dude's been going to college, you know what I'm saying? Like, 4.0 in the first semester, Jason O'Dell. I mean, that's just, that's heady stuff right there, you know what I'm saying? Old man power. Now listen to this. John is an old guy who sits back and has this tremendous amount of care and love for those that which he writes. We'll talk about that here in a second. He uses words like beloved and my dear children. I want you guys in your heart to imagine John as a guy just with a yearning and a passion to share the things that God has showed him with all of those Around. We say all the time that 10 of the 11 disciples were killed because of, uh, because of their faith. Well, what about the 11? The 11th is John, the only disciple to not be killed because of his faith. So he dies of old age or natural causes, whatever you want to say, he is the one who's not killed. Now, it's not to say that people weren't trying to kill him because they were. But he sits around and he dies of old age. So this is this guy, John. Now the next question is, is to whom did he write it to? Okay? We understand who John is. The next question, to whom did he write? Well, most scholars would say that he's writing this epistle in Asia Minor. Uh, that doesn't mean a hill of beans to most of you guys. But basically, Asia Minor 
is where Paul spent a lot of his time. In fact, most scholars would, would put John, when he writes 1 John, in Ephesus. Okay? And so Asia Minor is kind of, and I'm not great with geography, but Mediterranean Sea, have you guys heard of that before? Big body of water, right? Here's the Mediterranean. Here's the Black Sea, right? And in between there is modern-day Turkey, okay? And so basically all of Asia Minor is kind of in this in-between area of these two bodies of water. We've already seen a couple other cities in the early parts of Acts, uh, Laconium and Lystra, some different cities that are in this area, but he's there. And he's writing to this group of people that he has probably spent some time with. He's traveled, he's preached in these different cities. He's writing to churches in Asia Minor that have a huge connection with who he is as John. Now the third question is, why would he write? Why does he write this? Again, if we don't understand these things and we just skip by this, like, all right, first John, let's do it. We're excited, here we go. We'll miss the beauty of the epistle. He's writing... Because there has been some bad theology, and more importantly, some bad Christology that has entered into Asia Minor. Uh, There's a, a belief system or a way of living called Gnosticism. And at this time that John writes, not just the epistle, but his gospel, there was Gnostic thought that was being spread throughout the land. Paul and John and other missionaries have been spreading the gospel And here comes some false teachers. In fact, in a chapter, we're going to learn even about some antichrist language that John uses. But they're spreading this idea of Gnosticism. Now, to be a Gnostic is to put all of your your weight into the spiritual. In other words, the flesh and everything in the flesh is evil. And everything in the spiritual, then, is the thing to be yearned for or sought after or accepted or wanted. Well, why would this create a bad, a bad Christology? Because Christ comes in the what? In the flesh. And so to be a Gnostic, there would, there would be created a ton of Christological issues because you would say that Christ, A, cannot be God, and B, could not have lived a perfect life in the flesh because the flesh is evil. And so John writes to Asia Minor and whoever would read it, an epistle that would focus on teaching right Christology, that would dive into who Jesus was, explain who Jesus is, and then challenge people to come back to the scriptural, biblical mindset of Christ. Completely irrelevant for you and I today, right? Right? I mean, you guys are like, now listen to this. I was thinking today about the relevancy of, uh, of 1 John to, to you and I. There is this mindset um, in, the, in the Christian world that talks about um, basically like, just, just get me out of here. You know what I mean? Like we're here, we're aliens and we're strangers. Have you heard that verse? And it's true. So just get me out of here. Get me to heaven. You know what I mean? We got a free ticket. We got a free Just get me out of here. I've heard that over and over and over in my, in my Christian walk. We're here for just a little bit. It's temporary, which is true. So just, just get me out of here. Now, I'm not saying that we struggle with Gnosticism, but what I am saying is that if we don't believe that we're here in this life with a very sovereign purpose, then do you see how we could connect with some of the false teaching that's happening in the time of 1 John? Uh, we confuse the Scripture that when Paul said to live as Christ, to die as gain. 
We just focus on the to die is gain part, right? But he also said to live is Christ. And so there's something about life and here and now and Christ that John will just pour in. A, through his gospel, and B, through the epistle of First John. So I want you guys to have this love, this passion, this understanding for who John is, so that as we read this, you understand that this entire journey is going to be John making his case for Christ and how Christ came to show us life. Do you remember what he said in John 10.10? What does he say? The enemy came to still kill and destroy, but Christ came to show us life and how to have it more what? Abundantly. This is all of his theming. It's you need to understand that Jesus didn't just come to die. He also came to live and give us an example. And that's something to be excited about, isn't it? Look, look I, I want you guys to, to focus and understand for a moment on Jesus, the living Savior, walking, interacting, having conversations with widows, showing us how to love, showing us how to pray, showing us how to experience joy. That is John's intent. He says this in the Gospel of John, verse, chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's what he says in the Gospel of John, that, that his purpose is. Believe in Christ and have life in His name. So you guys ready? Here we go. First John, we're ready to roll now. Chapter 1, verse 1, beginning a six-year journey through this epistle. Probably not. First John, here we go. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, I sit for a moment after reading that. And I say, this sounds strangely familiar. As I read this verse, I'm like, it seems like I have heard something like this before. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Hold on a second. The Gospel of John, the Epistle of 1 John, both start out with the same rhetoric. That Christ is the Word of life, and that word of life became flesh. Now listen to this. John is saying, look, all of you have began to believe in bad teaching. You have trusted me as a preacher and as a minister because as he would travel around into Asia Minor, he would preach and teach and encourage. He's saying, look, you have trusted me before. Trust me again. I have seen him with my eyes. I touched him with my hands. I have heard the teachings. Trust me. Christ came in the flesh. He was real. This is not some spiritual journey. Jesus came. Trust me. Do you hear his plea? 
It's like that which was from the beginning, which always has been. I'm going to make four statements from John's perspective about his uh, epistle in these first four verses. Here's the first statement that I want to make. From John's perspective, in verse 1, what he's saying is, I encountered Christ. I encountered Him. I felt Him. I touched Him. I saw Him. I encountered him. I've heard a lot of people and a lot of you say that testimony is not important or, or it's not exciting. Like, you know, some of you guys have testimonies where, you know, I was, I was a part of a gang in L.A. and, you know, had a bunch of tattoos and, you know, doing whatever and, and all of a sudden like Christ. And, and we, we like think that something like that is the only exciting testimony, which puts the testimony on the focus of just conversion. The problem is our testimony is what God is continually doing in our life. And what John is focusing on here is, look, 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 look. I have seen him. He begins with his testimony. I've encountered him. I've touched him. I've heard him. Listen to this, folks. Never diminish your encounters with Christ. Please. They are so vital to the understanding of culture about how our God is still alive. The moment that we diminish our testimony is the moment that we take away the God-given grace of encountering Him, not just when we come to church, but daily. Isn't that the beauty of the Gospel? That we can daily encounter Jesus. There's something so powerful and majestic about that. So cherish your story. Cherish your testimony. Cherish what God's doing in your life. And if you're here and you're like, I don't, I don't have a story about what God's doing in your life, then may you. Then may you. May God grab your heart. May He reveal Himself to you. And may you come to Him and be a child of God. May you have a story and a testimony. Verse 2 says this. This gets a lot of fun here. The life, which is Christ, was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, first glance, this is like, this is incredibly wordy. You know what I mean? It's like blah, blah, blah. You ever, you ever do that sometimes? You like read the scripture and you just feel like it was like blah, 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 comma, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like the words just don't. Now listen to this. This verse is incredibly beautiful. First of all, we need to understand manifest. The Greek word for manifest is phanerao, which literally means to make visible what has been hidden. So what John is saying is not just have I encountered Christ, but Christ has become visible. Not just to me, but to the world. He has been incarnated. Incarnation is this big theological word that basically means that Christ became flesh, left the realms of heaven and took on flesh and blood and lived here. Christ was incarnated is what John is saying. He was made manifest. The word of life is here. The word of life is now. There's power in the fact that Jesus took on flesh and blood. Most world religions... Put God at a distance. God is out here somewhere in this realm, and the people are down here, most world religions. Now, the big benefit to this is that you can live completely by assumptions. 
you can live completely that my God out there acts like this. You see what I'm saying? My God out there somewhere would, would respond this way. My God out there somewhere does things like this. Do you understand that to a Gnostic environment, what John is saying is, there are no more assumptions of my God. My God took on flesh. And when He took on flesh, which was from the beginning, He always was and always will be, He showed us how to live. There are no more assumptions. He showed us how to love the widows. He showed us how to communicate. He showed us how to pray. He showed us how to be compassionate. He showed us how to be humble. He showed us how to be obedient. There are no more assumptions. This is the beauty of the incarnation of Christ. When He took on flesh and blood, God showed us His existence, His reality, who He was. Look, we don't celebrate that enough. Are you with me? We focus and celebrate so much on the death and resurrection. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. Clearly it's huge. It is the foundation of the gospel. But we need to celebrate, cherish the fact that our God, from the beginning of time, saw it fit as His sovereign plan to come down and to take on flesh and blood. Which that plan was, never an, uh, was not an afterthought, by the way. We say a lot of time that, that Jesus wasn't an afterthought. And I've heard a lot of discussion sometimes that the incarnation was an afterthought. God just decided one day, okay, Jesus was there from the beginning. But, but to actually send Christ, well, that's a whole different story. No. The incarnation of Christ was the plan. Take on flesh and blood. Show these people how they can be reunited. That no matter what other religion they understand, they can be connected to the Father through the Son. That they cannot put God at a distance. They can revere and be connected. Second statement from John's perspective is this. Christ, who always was and will always be, was made known to me. Remember, the first statement is what? I have encountered Christ. Completely different statement to say he's been made what? He's been made known to me. This interaction of the incarnation is 100% necessary. So, in John and in 1 John, we see the exact same rhetoric. Christ was from the beginning and then he comes. Do you think he's passionate about the incarnation? Do you think he's passionate? Like, do you think this is all on his heart? He writes a gospel, and then however many years later, he returns to the same opening of that gospel. Look, Christ came, and his coming is central. Trust me, I saw it. I heard him. How will we ever testify to the incarnation of Christ if we're not able to say, listen, 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 I've encountered him. He's been made known to me. Well, hold on a second, Mark. I haven't, seen, I haven't seen him in bodily form. Oh, really? Scripture says that there's something that's called the body of Christ. Have you, heard, have you heard this verse? That we as the church, the bride of Christ, are now the body of Christ. Yes, not the physical body of Jesus, but the growing, expanding kingdom of God that's made manifest through the different pieces of the body of Christ, the church. We are to reflect... The incarnated Christ. And so we pause and say, oh God, please increase our faith, right? 
please, more grace. If we're to reflect the incarnated Christ, then, then Christ, we desperately need you. We desire you. We want you. Friends, understand the centrality of Christ coming in the flesh, not just to die and resurrect, but to show us how to live, how to love, but teach. Verse 3 says this, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, Jason talked about this Greek word for fellowship last week. It shows up 15 times in the New Testament, 11 times in the writing of Paul, and four times in between verses 3 and 7 of 1 John chapter 1. It implies many things, but one of the greatest things that it implies is oneness. And what John says is, not just have I encountered Christ, not just has Christ been made known to me, but I am one through the Son with the Father. We have fellowship. And I eagerly desire for you to have fellowship too, is what he's saying. The statement I want to attach to this is this. I have fellowship with the Father through the Son and want you to have that same fellowship. Why is it so easy, as I try to be encouraged by John's heart and the love of an old man who has lived and learned, why is it so challenging to desire for people to have the gospel made known to them. Now, this sounds like, uh, this sounds like uh, you know, a fallacy. It sounds horrible to say. Can we just confess as a church that when we watch at times people come to the Lord that we lack in our solution? Can we just confess that at times we're more excited about the things of this world that cause our flesh to tremble than we are about the spread of the gospel. Now, I just want to share with you guys that as John begins to write, this is the utmost pieces of his heart. I have that fellowship, and like I said about my daughter Avery, I know how good it tastes, and I want you to have that too. I want you to have it. I want you to taste it. I want you to experience it. Look, it's one thing to say you have a heart for those who don't believe, and it's another thing to have a heart for those who don't believe. God's blessed us with this building, yes, to minister and to do different things. May this be a place and may we be a body that God continues to reform our hearts to cherish those who don't believe that the gospel may be known. Now verse 4, he ends this opening with something that's incredibly powerful. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. Now what I see is an old man who is writing out of obedience to the Father, 
called by God to write this epistle and to write the gospel. And what he says is that to be obedient to the Father, it brings me great joy to listen to what God says and to follow His commands brings me a tremendous amount of joy. Do you see that? We're writing this, sharing all of these things, challenging the Gnostic thought, challenging bad Christology, so that joy and obedience would be connected. He's only following the example. In fact, he's practicing right now the very thing that he's challenging in verses 1 through 3. He's saying Christ came. Wouldn't it be good if we saw his example and followed that here and now in this life? And so he ends this verse 4 by saying, may our joy be, may, may, may our joy be made complete. He's um, possibly thinking of a verse in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, at least the concept that says, and for the joy set before him, he what? He endured the cross. So John just doesn't say, look at Christ and follow his example. John is following his example. Jesus came and lived, and for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus connected joy and obedience. Jesus lived a life on this earth joyfully obeying the commands of the Father. Unbelievable how much we struggle with that. I, I just want to confess, um, you know, we, we do a lot of things here for the community and we were uh, second Saturday, this past Saturday, it's a great opportunity to go and love and it's so easy to walk away from times like that. You're walking away and you've had a great time with your friends and pulled this huge, you know, this uh, garage type shed down, tied things up with chains. It was awesome. You know, it was like home improvement for, you know, just that, that guy grunts. You know what I mean? You just want to do that all day. And uh, it's so easy to walk away from times like that and just be like, way to go, way to go, Mark. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it is just so easy to walk away. Um, I sit down and read the scriptures and pray together with my, my wife and, and Avery. It's so easy to lay my head on the pillow and just say, dude, you're a good dad. You love your kid. You love your wife. It's so easy to walk away from conversations um, where God has blessed me with the opportunity to share the gospel and, and to say, man, Look at you, man. You're such a stud. Such a, man, what's, gosh, you're just, you're just blessed. You know what that reveals? It reveals my struggle still thinking that somehow I earn it. Still thinking that somehow I have something good to offer him. It shows not the joy of obedience, but the burden of obedience. When I sit back and I look at the first four verses of John and 1 John, I see a guy who isn't living under the burden of obedience, but is 100% joyful in the opportunity to obey the incarnated Christ. 
Let me ask you this. Through the church or your small group, different studies that you're a part of, what do you hear? Do you hear, hey, you need to read your Bible more? Or do you hear, be honest with yourself, or do you hear, I get the privilege of opening the Word of God and through the revelation of the Spirit have the opportunity to hear what God's Word means, what it says for my life, how it can change and reform me. Do you hear, you need to pray more? Or I get the opportunity because Christ is now the high priest and curtain is torn in two to approach the throne of grace and even talk to the Creator. Do you hear? You need to serve more. Look, you're not loving on the lost. You're not loving on your neighbors. Or do you hear? I get the privilege of being the bearer of the gospel to a lost world through the grace of Christ Jesus. How are you hearing, friends? Are you sitting in the pews right now burdened by the call to obey. If that's the case for you, and I'm confessing my own struggles with that, it's rooted in the connection that we can still earn it. The moment that we believe wholeheartedly that the incarnate Christ came, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, was raised again, and He carries my burdens. And His blood was shed for my sin. And He made it right with me and God. The moment that we understand that fully is the moment when we will sit back and say, God, continue to command because it brings me so much joy to please you. I don't care about myself or pleasing myself or even making myself look good. All I desire is to hear from you and to go and live. And do you understand that First John is saying, look, 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 just watch Christ. He wasn't just some spiritual enactment that came down and prophesied. He was God, a part of the Trinity, revealing the hidden mysteries of God. That's who He is. So church, we're getting ready to see John's plea about love, unity, relationships, encouragement, and what it means to look at Christ and to follow. And tonight we begin by saying, God, would you connect joy and obedience for us? Would you change our hearts so that no longer we feel burdened by the grip to earn anything, but that we just ultimately desire like an innocent child to please and serve you. If we don't get that tonight, church, if we don't see that in John's heart, then we miss who this guy is that's writing these encouragements. He wasn't just a spirit. He came, lived, and showed us how to follow God with a tremendous amount of joy, passion, and fervor. May we be the body of Christ, looking to Christ as our example. Let's pray together.
God, I'm just humbled by the opportunity that we have to serve you. And I pray, Father, that as we continue to look at the the practical ways, the theological ways, the deep ways that you showed us how to live, I pray that we recognize how that's even possible. That you've sent your spirit to empower us to walk like your son, Jesus. So God, for those in this room that feel burdened in the negative sense to follow you, I pray, God, that by your grace you'll release that burden that you'll set the captives free like your word says that you would and that you'll release us as a church, as the body to be able to celebrate joyfully the call that you have on our life. Oh God, would you cause a stirring in our soul? Will you help us hear clearly that we may know how and what it is that you would have us do? God, stir in our hearts, create a joy, and may you continue to set the example for us to follow. We love you. And we're thankful for your grace.